Amen. Please be seated. You can turn in your Bible to John chapter 11. We'll look at verses 28 through 37 this morning, and the text is also printed here in the bulletin for you. So in 1896, uh, Charles Sheldon, maybe a familiar name to some of you, he had a novel published called In His Steps. How many of you have heard of that? It's a good number. It's a good number. Uh, it's had a pretty wide readership. More than 30 million copies sold. It's one of the all-time bestseller type books, and uh, it's had a huge influence in the, the pop Christian culture in America. You know, the bracelets, right? The bracelets, the subtitle of the book, uh, What Would Jesus Do? What Would Jesus Do? Sheldon, the author, he imagines a town somewhere in the Midwest, uh, and it's a town that's transformed by asking that question, what would Jesus do, before every action, before everything they did. This is what the, the town was called upon to imagine, and it transformed the town, right? Every, everybody's making the imitation of Jesus the driving principle of their lives, the imitation of Jesus. And uh, so Sheldon was... Uh, he was a leader in the social gospel movement. If you don't know what that means, you can ask me about it later, like during sermon discussion if you want to. Um, and he uses guilt as a pretty big motivator in that story. If you've read it, uh, it's, it's, um, it's not the best book. If that uh, seems antagonistic to you, then maybe we should talk about that. <laughs> it's fine. Um, a lot of people believe that's what it means to be a Christian fundamentally. Fundamentally, to be someone who imitates Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, right? A lot of people believe that. A lot of Christians believe imitating Jesus is of the essence of Christianity. Asking that question, what would Jesus do before you do anything in life, that that's what Christianity consists of. Um, is that what it means to be a Christian? First and foremost, asking what Jesus would do and acting like Jesus and imitating Jesus it is not. It is not what Christianity is ultimately about. Actually, the first question of the Christian is not, what would Jesus do? The first question of the Christian is, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Because fundamentally, Christianity is about him. It's not about me. It's not about my life and my activities. Christianity is fundamentally about who Jesus is, what he has done in our creation, what he's done in our history, what he's done in our salvation. So before Jesus is the great exemplar, Right, the one who um, is a great example for us. Before that, he's the one who loves us. He's our champion. He's our savior. He's our redeemer. He's the one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's what he is first, and that's what Christianity is first. It's about him as our savior. Before he's the one we can imitate, he's the one we trust. He's the one we trust. He's our mediator. He's our vicar. He's our representative. So, so if we don't read the scripture primarily, um, it, actually, um, this is, yeah, we don't read the scriptures primarily, not first and foremost, looking for principles to live by. Right? We don't look at the scripture when we read them, any scripture. We don't, our main question is not, what does this say about how I should live? As if what would Jesus do were our all-important interpretive question when we come to the scriptures. 
That's not what we should be looking for essentially and primarily. We read the scriptures primarily looking for what they tell us about Jesus, what kind of person Jesus is. What does Jesus reveal about God? What did he do? What is he doing? What does he promise to do? And why? Those are the main kinds of questions we should have in mind as we read. The truth about who Jesus is will change us, and it is right to ask how the gospel makes a difference in our lives, and our imitation of him and our obedience to him is more significant than just an afterthought to the scriptures. But the supreme reason we even have the scriptures at all is so that we can know him. So may we always be about that when we read the scriptures. May we especially be about that this morning. So let me pray even now for God's help to that end. Let's pray and we'll read the scripture. Father, we're prone uh, to wander in so many ways, uh, ways that we feel and ways that we don't. We do not have the appropriate interpretive grid when we come to the scriptures all of the time. We pray that you would help uh, reshape our minds and reshape our hearts. Help us by your Holy Spirit to see you in your word. It is a revelation of you, after all, and we pray that you would help us in, in seeing you to have the appropriate response to you, which is one of faith and trust that works itself out in our lives in love. We pray for this help as we consider your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So a brief recap, because we're in the middle of John 11, which is one uh, large story that ends actually uh, in in chapter 12. Uh, Recap, there's a family in Bethany. There's Lazarus the brother and the two sisters, Mary and Martha, And that family sent word to Jesus when Lazarus fell ill, hoping that Jesus would come and heal Lazarus. Jesus delayed going to this family, this family that he loved, and his friends. He delayed going to them, arriving only after Lazarus was dead and buried for four days. The sisters, Martha and Mary, are grieving. They're grieving in their different ways. They're confused. They're confused especially by Jesus and about Jesus. 
this one they thought was their friend and the one who loved them. Last week, we saw Mary go out of the town, out of Bethany, to meet Jesus, and she gently scolded him. Martha, Martha gently scolded Jesus, and he engaged with her and was redirecting her attention to himself, sort of away from her dead brother and to himself as her true hope. So it's unclear whether that conversation had very much effect on Martha. She, uh, she goes back to get Mary now, and she says, the teacher is looking for you, the one who he had just revealed himself to Martha as the resurrection and the life, and she had just made a confession that he's the Christ, he's the Son of God. Right? Pretty big words, pretty big language to be attributing to Jesus, and, but she goes back to tell Mary that it's the teacher, the teacher who's calling. <clears throat> Maybe teacher was sort of a familiar term, a term of affection or endearment that they used of him. But it is a far cry short of her confession of Jesus from that very last verse that, that we looked at uh, last week as the Christ, the Son of God, or, or even as the Lord that she's called him before, let alone how Jesus has just revealed himself to her, that he's the resurrection and the life. So, and in fact, we don't even really know if Martha's telling the full truth here uh, when she says the teacher's here and calling for you. Um, it isn't recorded for us that Jesus sent her back into Bethany to get Mary. In fact, it says in our passage, when she had said this, so presumably right after she made her confession, she went back to get Mary. Um, and it isn't hard for us to imagine that Martha wants to get the two of them together. Martha wants Jesus to see Mary, to see her sister, to see how hard Lazarus's death has been on her, especially. She wants, to, she wants Jesus to see the effects of this death on her sister, really to see how Jesus' absence has hurt her sister, how Jesus' failure has hurt her sister. So maybe she's, uh, she's just telling her sister what she knows will get her sort of to perk up and get her out of the house. Um, whatever the case, it worked. Mary, who was so distraught, maybe even uh, in shock, at her brother's death, um, unable to, to get up and leave the house, she was revived, she rose quickly, and she went out to see him. At least Martha told Mary in private, right? At least she told her in private so that all the Jews who were from Jerusalem, those who were really already showing themselves to be the enemies of Jesus, that when they, you know, she thinks if they see Jesus, they're going to carry him off and... Um, and put him to trial or something, or stone him to death, right? She doesn't want that to happen, so she tells Mary in private so that the rest of the Jews might not discover that Jesus is in the area, but that didn't really help because they all just followed Mary anyway, uh, thinking that she was probably going out to cry at the tomb. And that sort of reinforces for us the idea uh, that Mary has been the hardest hit in the family. Right? She's, she's brokenhearted uh, because when Martha left to meet Jesus, all the friends and the, the, the mourners and the ones who came to console, they didn't go with Martha. Maybe she didn't demonstrate the fact that she needed their help as much, right? Um, think, um, but the, the community stuck with Mary, and when Mary got up, they followed her closely out of concern, maybe something like uh, a suicide watch. 
So, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Um, I don't know all the, the Catholic saint names that they've given to all the saints, the scriptural ones or the ones throughout history. It seems like Mary should have a saint name like Mary of the Lord's Feet. Because every time you see her in the Gospels, that's where she is. She's in Luke 10, the only other Gospel that records Mary and Martha. Um, in Luke 10, she's sitting at Jesus' feet. That's made explicit. She's just soaking in his teaching. Here she is uh, collapsing at his feet in anguish. And in the next chapter, in chapter 12, she's anointing his feet. She falls at his feet again and anoints his feet with costly perfume and wipes his feet with her hair. So that is a picture of, the, she's got, I think, a, unique, a uniquely and, and wrenchingly beautiful relationship with Jesus. Uh, her words, um, she, she treats him like a king all the time by sitting at his feet. She adores him. One might even say she, she worships him, and her words to him are... Um, are always beautiful. Her words to Jesus here are nearly identical to her sister's words to Jesus that we looked at last week, but they are a different sort of expression. Her words here are different from her sister's in their meaning. Uh, they're a lament because she's undone. She's heartbroken. That's clear from the way she collapses at, her, at his feet. Mary's words are a lament. The Psalms, let me just recommend a little book uh, to you on the Psalms. It's not really a full commentary, but it's very small. You could probably read it all in one sitting. It's called um, Psalms, the Prayer Book of the Bible by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's an excellent book that I've gone back to uh, many times over the, the years. And, uh, and so Bonhoeffer calls the, Psalm, the Psalms the Prayer Book of the Bible. This is the book of the Bible that, that record and consist and subsist of essentially God's people praying to God Right? And the psalms are filled with laments like this. Right? The psalms are filled with laments sung to the Lord in times of great distress. And they're often more than just complaints about tough circumstances. They're often more than, than just complaining about the, the hardship itself. They often carry notes of complaint against God. Confused, wondering, difficult complaints about God and toward God because he could have stopped all of this. And where's he been? Psalm 6 that John read for our Old Testament reading, my soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? It's the kind of thing you see a lot in the Psalms. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 88, which is a remarkable psalm. Psalm 88, 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? All over the place. In the Psalms, the Scriptures. God's very word laments. It's not just our words. God's very word, as he's teaching us what it means to be in a relationship with him, 
God's very word laments. But there is an unbelieving lamentation. There's an unbelieving version of that. There's a hopeless grief. There's a vision of the world that sees only death and just sinks into despair and no longer prays to God about it. There's an unbelieving lamentation, and it's possible that that Mary's lament is tinged with that kind of despair. It's threatened by that kind of despair, at least. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. So those are pretty strong words to describe Jesus' sort of his emotional response to what he's seeing here. Rodney Whitaker is a commentator. He says a better translation than deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled would be that he became angry in spirit and very agitated. So Jesus isn't just sad here. That's, I think, pretty easy for us to, to assume as we come to this passage, that, uh, that this is describing him primarily as being sad. But he's mad. He's not just sad, at least. Uh, Primarily, he is mad. What's he mad at? What's he mad at? If he's just identified himself as the resurrection and the life, what would he be mad at? What What would his arch enemy be if he's the resurrection and the life? Who is his nemesis? It's death itself. Death itself. Jesus is deeply moved within himself. He's boiling with holy anger at the the mere reality of death in the lives of those that he loves, at death's reign of terror, at the mere fact that pain and sadness are even things that exist. He's angry. He's deeply moved within himself. He's angry at all the misery in the world that we've brought about through our sin. He's angry at the very thought that his people would be held captive to hopeless grief. Friedrich Zundel says, uh, he asks the question, what troubled him? What troubled Jesus? He says, what troubled him was this display of weeping, this tribute, as it were, to his opponent, death, this tacit magnifying of the omnipotence of death. And uh, Frederick Bruner says that the world's certainty that the ultimate reality is death, that breaks Jesus' heart. Our certainty that the ultimate reality is death or that death is omnipotent. Jesus is the revelation of God's love. And God's love means life. So when he comes up against death and he comes up against the causes of death, the whole idea of death, when he comes up against what death entails and its effects in the lives of the people that he's made and that he loves. When Jesus, who is, who is God's love personified and he's, he's life himself, comes up against death, he gets angry. This is the main fight. This is the main event. And his is not an impotent rage. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So Jesus isn't at the tomb yet. 
He's weeping at their mere invitation. He's weeping with them and for them, with the living and for the living. And he's weeping with them and for them for their response to Lazarus' death. He weeps even though he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Sorry, spoiler alert, that happens in the next paragraph, right? Even though he's about to raise Jesus from the dead, he weeps. That's really odd to us. That's really odd to us, especially because in another place in the Gospels, uh, in Luke chapter 8, there's a, a synagogue ruler's daughter who dies. And he goes to bring her back to life, and it says, All were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she's not dead but sleeping. Why didn't he have the same kind of response here? Just say, don't worry about it, guys. I got this. Let's go to the tomb. It's going to be great. Turn the frowns upside down, right? We, We imagine that knowing what he knows would make it easier. that there would be sort of a wry smile and a twinkle in his eye, but this is real for Jesus. This world is real. He isn't play-acting. You can't negate the reality of the suffering and the pain. You can't just erase it, even with the hope, the sure hope of the resurrection, even with Jesus in the room. This is real for Jesus, but... When he weeps, John uses different language to describe his weeping. It doesn't really come out in the translation, but it's a different word there to describe their weeping, Mary's weeping and and the Jews weeping, and Jesus weeping is different. And uh, Colin Cruz says that his weeping is of a different order. There's something fundamentally unique happening when Jesus weeps. He weeps like no one else. Fundamentally unique. More than just weeping for different reasons. Just the cause of his weeping. The the scripture is about Jesus. The scripture is about who he is and what he has done and how he reveals God and how he saves us. So this isn't just saying that Jesus weeps and since Jesus wept, deeply with compassion and empathy, you should too. You should weep like him and for the same reasons he would weep. It's not just saying that. <clears throat> you, should, you should be sensitive, but it's not just saying that. It's not just saying that you should stop trying to figure out how to, how to help people in their grief by turning their thoughts away from their grief, uh, but really you should just join them and weep with those who weep. It's, I mean, those are biblical ideas, but that's not what this passage is about. Maybe you should do those things. It's not the main point of this scripture. The main point of this scripture is Jesus wept. And in doing so, he revealed the heart of God to us. And he himself has had the right human response to death, and he's had it in solidarity with us and on our behalf. He's wept like no one else has ever wept. Good luck having the right response to death. You can't prepare yourself for your death or another person's death in a way that will make you have a a clean and pure response to it, the right human response coming from your heart. 
the right expression of, of sorrow and grief. You can't do it. Your response will be tainted by unbelief. You'll be overwhelmed with hopelessness. Your response will be tainted by selfishness or coldness. His response is holy. His response is unique. Death bothers him infinitely more than it bothers us. It is so antithetical to God's nature. It's so opposed to the life of the Trinity. It's such an offense to his very being. He's the resurrection and the life. And here's his real enemy. Jesus is the only one who really knows what death even means, let alone having the right emotional response to it. And he knows that we've all brought it down on ourselves, that it wouldn't even exist in this world if it weren't for sinners like us. He knows that we've brought it on ourselves as we've sought life apart from God, and he could have just left, it, left us to it. But he entered into solidarity with, with us, and that means our salvation. The author of life united himself to us in this world of death, he took our humanity to himself in his very own person, and he had the right response to death for us as our substitute, on our behalf, as our representative. His response to death, the death we've brought on ourselves through our sin and rebellion against God, his response to death was not to heap our troubles back on our own heads, but to carry them as his own burden, to bear them himself. Isaiah 53 says, He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And that means doing something for us in some way that we're, we're incapable of doing. We've not done for ourselves. We can't do for ourselves. He's done it. His anger at death, to the point of tears, his anger at death is as the enemy of life and the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people, his deep sorrow. That's his redemption of us. That's not just an example for us. That's how he saves us, by having that response to death. We needed someone to do our humanity right, and that means to weep like he wept. And he did it. He did it in every way. His weeping means the restoration of the cosmos. It's not just an example for us to imitate. His weeping is the restoration of our relationship with God. He's not frustrated in his powerlessness to defeat this great enemy. That's not why he's all agitated, because he can't do anything about this problem of death. He will vanquish death. He does it in the next, next paragraph, at least symbolically. He, his weeping does not indicate a lack of faith. He offers the true purified lament to God on our behalf. The way we're instructed to in the Psalms, the way a human being's relationship in this broken world is supposed to look like full of lament, Jesus does it. He's the only one who can pray the Psalms rightly because he is the Word. And God's Word, God's very Word, laments. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? See how Jesus loved Lazarus? Some of them said, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man 
also have kept this man from dying? So the, the Jewish mourners see Jesus' love. They see it, but they don't understand it. They don't understand it fully, and they make the mistake of assuming that death has beaten Jesus here. We all would have made the same mistakes. Jesus is weeping because he loves, but he doesn't just love Lazarus. What he's about to do in raising Lazarus from the dead is not just for Lazarus. It's for his family and friends and the disciples and us to see who Jesus really is. He doesn't just love Lazarus. He doesn't just love the sisters. He loves the world, even though we've all chosen misery and death apart from God. But the one who is the resurrection and the life, that's who he is in himself. He won't lose to death, even though he himself would die shortly. That's not his loss, ultimately. Leslie Newbegin said, in the immediate presence of death and of the hopeless unbelief of his friends in the face of death, Jesus was facing that power which he had come to destroy, a power which is met by the wrath of him who is the author of life, but which could only be cast out when the author of life took the whole power of death upon himself. That's how he beats death. When he died, it sure looked like death won. Like it was too late for him to work his messianic magic. I mean, you heard comments to that effect in the Gospels. Couldn't he who had done so many signs and wonders have gotten down off the cross? Maybe you've speculated, couldn't he figure out a way to forgive us and save us apart from his dying? The assumption being that in order to beat death, he'd have to avoid it. You just spare all of his people from it and spare himself from it. Just avoid death. That's how you beat it. The assumption being that if he died, the enemy had the victory and it was too late. But his love and his power and his salvation would mean his enduring death for us, in solidarity with us, as one of us, on our behalf, facing death for us, and too late is only a problem if your name isn't resurrection. And that's how he would break death's reign and trample it underfoot on behalf of his people. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, since therefore the children, that's us, that's believers, God's children is the idea there, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's our, our humanity, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So his solidarity with us as our vicarious champion in his life and in his works and in his death and resurrection and in his, his everlasting communion with the Father that can never be threatened again. His solidarity with us as one of us, that's our salvation. That's what our salvation is. That's the real significance of the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, including this little tiny verse, Jesus wept. 
it is good for you to weep with those who weep. The scriptures make it clear that, uh, that we're called to that kind of compassion, to weep with those who weep. But people don't just need to know that someone weeps with them. They need to know that Jesus wept for them and that his tears have changed the world. His tears have restored us to God. His tears mean our salvation and our life. That's what people need to know. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would rework the way that we think about you, about ourselves, about our relationship to you, about the way we read the scriptures, that you would keep Jesus Christ in front of our eyes and central in our hearts, that when we think about what we need and our salvation and the restoration we need with you, we think of Jesus Christ, about who he is and what he's done about his life, death, and resurrection, and everything about him. We pray that you would keep him central to our thoughts as our champion, our vicar, our substitute, and that when we see descriptions of Jesus like this one, and the fact that he wept with anger and sorrow over the reality of death in the life of those that he loved, we pray that you would help us to see, help us to believe, and help us to trust that his tears had power to change the world, that, uh, that he is our all in all, and the fact that he has wept for us means everything to us. We pray that you would teach us more about your great love as seen in Jesus Christ, not just for our sakes, but for the sake of our loved ones who also need to know that Jesus has wept for them and for the whole world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.